All right, so we are in Ephesians 4 today. So when we looked at Ephesians 1, we had a discussion about um, election and what that might mean in Ephesians. And I suggested that uh, the best way to understand that in the larger logic of Scripture and in Ephesians is, um, is not that God is micromanaging and uh, predestining and forcing us against whatever will we may or may not have, but that there's an initiation of God uh, but there is still this expectation of response. And I think we'll see that continues as we look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 2, we have Paul giving something like a, a summary of the Christian journey. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, uh, but God, who is rich in mercy, not rich in wrath, not rich in anger, but rich in love, rich in mercy, has made you alive through Christ uh, by grace, through faith, so that you might do good works. So it's not so that you might just uh, bide your time till you go to heaven, uh, but so you might live that out now. And he reminds them, as he's speaking to a largely Gentile audience, that you were once not quite a people of the promise. Not that God didn't love you, not that God had no use or purpose for you, but you weren't one of the chosen kind of Israelite nation. And uh, don't forget what a gift it is uh, as you have been brought in through what Christ has done. Then Ephesians 3 has my favorite prayer in Scripture. This is the prayer that uh, Lauren and I have said over our children since before they were born. Portions of this are in each of their room, but it's that, um, that beautiful prayer. For this reason, we kneel before the Father, uh, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives his name. We pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all God's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. I mean, it's just powerful. That's the only verses I know. So I just wanted to show it off when I had a chance. Uh, it, is, it is beautiful. And as we, we prayed this over our kids, um, it's, it's not something that you exhaust uh, as though you, you get it memorized, you say it a few times, and that's it. It, it just continues uh, to inspire and to um, challenge uh, and to bless. Um, so Paul moves from that then in chapter 3 to where we are in chapter 4 as he's reminded them of who they are, what they've been called to, about God's uh, unimaginable grace. Now he, calls, he kind of transitions into calling them to live in light of that. So it's not, this, this transition's important, it's not get your act together and then you might get some grace or some love. It's rather pay attention to what God has already done on your behalf. And because you have been so loved, then you move forward to love others. So this is not earning God's love, this is responding to God's love. If we get that backwards, we, uh, we are already on the wrong foot and we are already misunderstanding who God is and uh, what Christianity is about. So, chapter 4. Uh, I urge you, therefore, I, a prisoner in the Lord, to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Um, so Paul reminds them he's a prisoner in this kind of upside-down nature of the kingdom. Rather than a prisoner being a, um, a bad thing, it just shows that he is living out this Christ thing. And maybe you should lean in and uh, hear with special authority what Paul has to say. Your translations might not pick up on this, but... The phrase of in the Lord or in Christ shows up so often in Ephesians. It's like Paul wants them to know their identity. 
who are you? We are those in the Lord. And so everything we do is in some case, in some way, in Christ. He calls them to walk worthily. And so as we read chapter 4, we see what it means to walk worthy of uh, the calling to which we've been called. So I mentioned in uh, chapter 1 the election language and how I don't think it's this uh, really strong predestination. So when Paul says, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called, you see very clearly implied in there that whatever you've been called to, there's expectation that you respond. You walk according to your call. Um, So God initiates, he does the calling, and we seek to walk worthily with his help. So walk worthily of the calling to which you've been called. Uh, This is in contrast, the same language there of walking, uh, to how they used to walk in chapter 2 previously, uh, how they uh, were walking in darkness and in their sins. Now they are walking in the Lord. So what's that look like then as they walk worthily? Uh, Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, uh, with patience, putting up with one another in love. Humility in the first century was typically a despised trait. You don't aim for humility in an honor-shame culture. What you aim is to elevate yourself, not to lower yourself. But if you are situating yourself in the the Lord reality, uh, then a prisoner might have uh, more more place to speak, as Paul's saying here, and we pursue the humility of Christ. We are not seeking to elevate ourselves uh, at the cost of others, Uh, but we practiced humility because that is what our Lord did. With all humility and gentleness and patience, uh, these Paul refers to elsewhere as fruit of the Spirit. To walk worthily uh, of this calling is to properly represent God, to properly image uh, God whose Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. And we pick up in this as he says, uh, bearing with one another, putting up with one another, uh, that this is not easy. It's not as though you get a bunch of, uh, of in-the-Lord people together and they've got their acts already uh, in order and they're all easy to live with. Instead, there's this assumption that it's going to take some work. There's going to be some difficulties uh, and some problems and some misunderstandings, but you bear with one another in joy and patience so that you might, as we're about to see, represent uh, the community and unity that is true of the Trinity. So he calls them to, uh, verse 3, make every effort to keep uh, the the unity of the Spirit uh, in the bond of peace. Uh, Instead of thinking, as we've said before, uh, in Ephesians, peace is not so much an internal disposition that Paul is calling them to. He's thinking of the communal peace here. Uh, Make every effort to keep the bond of peace. There's so much that happens in the messiness of church when we really get into each other's lives that makes you uh, not want to keep the bond of peace, to kind of cut ties and run. But he reminds them because he needs to remind them because they are living real lives that have real messiness and um, that they've got to make every effort. They've got to work hard at the unity and the bonds of peace because this doesn't come by default. Our default is to protect, to cut ties, uh, whatever it might be. But we go against that because we know what the effort was done so that we might be made at peace with God and one another. Taking that seriously, we seek to pay that forward. Yeah. So could you just elaborate on this definition of the word peace there as to what that really means? I mean, we probably all have some connotation of of what that word means. Yeah. I think of it um, as picking up on the kind of Jewish shalom, 
the more holistic kind of peace. So rather than a kind of inner lack of turmoil or having absolutely no conflict, there might even be peace in the midst of conflict, but it is um, the, the hope of, uh, of things being um, whole and right and healed um, might be the kind of, kind of the glimpses you get of, of new creation. That's what we're, we're aiming towards, the shalom uh, blessing. So um, it's kind of a holistic thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so verse 4. One body and one spirit, just as you were called uh, in one hope of your calling. So that calling language again. So we are one body. This is picking up on uh, one body of Christ. And why are we one body? Because there is one spirit. Uh, Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, um, or of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, Paul gets most poetic maybe in Ephesians, more than any other book. This is his, uh, where he gets that kind of, uh, kind of beautiful poetic language. Um, if, we, if we break this down a little bit, we can even sense some Trinitarian language in there. Verse 4, one spirit. Verse 5, one Lord, which often refers to Christ. Uh, verse 6, one God and Father. So as he's calling them to the bond of peace, to unity, to being one body, uh, we even get glimpses here of, of what the church later describes as the three-in-oneness of God. One Lord, one Spirit, one Father. Uh, as the, these three persons exist as one, they are an image for how we might reflect that community that has unity. We are distinct, but at the same time we can be one body. Uh, so uh, we reflect God because he is a communal being. As strange as that might be, but it makes sense. There's this kind of sensible connection between who God is and who he calls us to be. This is why, or one of the many reasons why uh, we can't be Christians in isolation. To be a Christian, just a me and God kind of thing, uh, doesn't represent a God who is about peace among brothers and sisters, among diversity, um, or uh, as a way to image a God who is three in one. You can't do that as a single person. We've got to get in the messiness of community. And it's in that messiness that we can also display the grace and the patience and the forgiveness of God. So a uh, individualistic um, faith does not adequately represent who God is. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's interesting of all the things that the the baptism might represent here, uh, Paul's using it to refer to their unity. Uh, So a lot of baptism is about forgiveness or receiving the Holy Spirit, all of which are legitimate angles to take on baptism. But Paul here uses it to say, look, this is also something that makes us one. We have shared this. It has brought us into this one spirit who confess one Lord. Uh, So we all go into the same water. But thankfully it gets cleaned uh, in between, maybe, uh, hopefully. Uh, One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh, One faith, Stephen Fowle says, Uh, It probably implies, as he says, one faith, one confession. That there was some degree of uh, shared confession. They knew they were confessing a certain thing about who God was and what it means to follow him. Um, So this might be something like what we get in the second century where Irenaeus says, even illiterate barbarians, basically people who can't read, who don't know anything else, they at least know these kind of things. And he basically says something like the Apostles' Creed. One God, one Father, one Creator, one Jesus, who is Lord, uh, and so forth. Um, so maybe that's, that's picked up here a little bit. 
And then verse 6, the language of all in the Greek is ambiguous. When it says father of all, who is over all, who is through all, and who is in all, this could be translated over all people, which is picking up on his communal focus here, but it can also mean all things, which picks up on the cosmic dimension of how God is creator and who is above all. Both work. Maybe Paul uses ambiguous language on purpose um, in such a poetic book. Questions on one through six? Yeah. So he spends like the second half of chapter two and then talks a lot in chapter three about Gentiles. Everybody's now involved. Everybody's in. And then he comes in with a lot of unity language here. Is that, I, mean, is I think it's a natural move, yeah. Uh, with Jews, I mean, you can just tell Jews and Gentiles aren't quite sure how to relate together because they've often related in a kind of separation. And now they're supposed to be in community. And you've got people who are probably suspicious of one another, probably have uh, some issues of pride or resentment or whatever it might be. Uh, so I think we can't be for sure, but it makes sense that maybe the reason he's harping on this is because the Jew-Gentile barrier is broken down. Um, but there's also social barriers being broken down. You've got slave masters and the slave brought together. Um, so, you know, we get like in Galatians, um, uh, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, uh, male, female. There's a lot of, of shifting going on in their cultural uh, assumptions uh, where in the lore they've got new cultural assumptions and that's going to cause some conflict. Um, maybe why he wants to remind them of what's true. All right, seven. Now to each one is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Uh, and then he, um, he quotes Psalm 68:18 in a kind of strange way. Uh, so going up into the heights, he captured captives and he gave gifts to the people. Verse nine, so what does uh, he went up mean? except that also he went down into the lower parts or lower regions. Um, And the one who went down is also uh, the one who was up above all in the heavens so that he might fill all things. All right. Thank you, Paul, for uh, some obscure uh, exegesis here. Um, What he might mean by this is not entirely clear, but there are three options about what he might refer to in the uh, going up and coming down. So uh, one option uh, that he comes down uh, in the incarnation, so this is kind of the Philippians move, Uh, he takes on flesh, and after he suffers and dies, he goes up and is exalted. So going down, incarnation, going up is the exaltation. Another way of reading this is that he goes down at the crucifixion into Hades, into the realm of death, And having defeated death, he ascends up as the victor. Um, So that's the going down to death, up as the victor over death, and eventually um, reunited with the Father. There is also a way of reading this in which uh, the ascension, so instead of going down to up, he goes up to down. He ascends into heaven, and then he comes down like at Pentecost uh, through the Spirit. All of those are things that happen to Jesus. All of those are related to um, his victory. Uh, over sin and death and his giving gifts and which of those three it might be I don't know I don't know that it's ultimately that important because all three of those options I think are valid readings and uh, are tied to what he has accomplished Uh, so I think rather 
uh, we see what, what Paul is, is getting us to. So he's talked about unity, and then he moves immediately to giftedness, uh, which helps us think that rather than him just going off on some random tangent about gifts, he is seeing giftedness as somehow part of calling us to unity. That is, those who are gifted have a, have a responsibility to use their gifts to unite the church. Uh, so verse 11, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So some of your translations might say he gave some to be, but that's not what it says in the Greek. Literally, he gives the apostles and the prophets. It's as though it's saying he's giving these folks as gifts to the church. Um, so that uh, rather than being like, oh, I've got this gift, and um, that makes me somehow special, it's rather those who are, are um, that he calls uh, to be prophets, evangelists, or whatever, they themselves are to be a gift among the community uh, by bearing witness to the truth, whatever that might look like. Uh, just to highlight a couple of these, because it's really hard to parse what makes one an apostle or a prophet or evangelist in these kind of lists as opposed to a shepherd or a teacher. A lot of these seem kind of overlapping roles. Um, and he doesn't define these, so I don't know that we need to spend a whole lot of space trying to define what doesn't get defined. But I like the language of shepherds. Uh, Jesus talks about the good shepherd uh, in the Gospels, and often this seems to be in contrast uh, to the current shepherds of Israel who are leading, the kind of religious leaders who are leading in a way that is, um, is about elevating themselves. Uh, it's about um, kind of self-promotion. But in Ezekiel 34, which I think Jesus draws on, uh, you get this prophesy to the shepherds, say, woe to you uh, because you have eaten the choice meats and neglected your duties. Uh, basically, to be a shepherd uh, is to be one uh, who serves. And so Jesus will go on to say, uh, I am the good shepherd. And how do you know I'm the good shepherd? Because I lay down my life willingly. Uh, so it's that willing sacrifice uh, that qualifies one to be a shepherd. And so all of our elders or shepherds here, I like that we use the language of shepherd. Um, their model is the, uh, the sacrificial love and servant-heartedness of Jesus. And I think they do that well, uh, except the ones present in class today. So I wanted to, you know, make sure they were listening. Did you get that? Oh, okay. It's recorded. Um, some uh, can't teach, what is it, an old, well, maybe we won't go there. Um, <laughs> with three classes left, Hilton and I are, uh, are getting a little feisty with each other. Um, so what's the point of giftedness? Uh, it's not uh, just for the sake of some good teaching or prophecy or evangelizing, whatever it might be, but uh, the, the, these, these gifts are means to an end, and we get that in verse 12, uh, for the equipping of the saints, which is the called out ones, uh, all the church, for the work of service. That is, uh, our, our calling, those of us who are teachers or ministers or whatever, uh, is to help equip the church to carry on works of service. This is what the church is to be. It's a body who represents God, and as we represent God and our Lord Jesus, uh, we do so through uh, acts of service for the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, until, I'm in verse 13, um, uh, until they attain, they all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God 
to the mature man uh, and to, Paul just goes long-winded here, to the maturity of the fullness of Christ. So uh, what's the target? What are we aiming for? Unity. Again, unity is so important here. Knowledge. Um, I get really irritated with this idea that um, all you need is love in the church. Kind of. But love that's divorced from knowledge is ignorant love. It's not good love. Uh, True love uh, is going to also uh, be wise love. Uh, So we do need to grow in knowledge so that we might express that love better. Uh, So that all you need is good feelings is not a Christian idea. It's certainly not a Pauline idea. Rather, these two go together. Uh, True love leads to greater knowledge. Greater knowledge leads to greater love. And our goal then is so that we might be complete and mature in Christ. This is our calling. Um, What we're to avoid in verse 14, avoid immaturity, vulnerability, and our ignorance. Uh, To stick our head in the sands and not learn what it means to follow Christ is not to somehow get us out of trouble uh, so that we might plead ignorance. It actually may lead us into trouble. And then verse 15, and I'll hand it over to Hilton. Speaking the truth in love, let us increase uh, in, um, in all ways in him who is the head of Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Man, this is so hard to do. The church tends to either err on um, trying to be loving by avoiding speaking the truth so they might not offend anybody, or they just speak the truth without love, and so uh, they end up offending and being uh, judgmental. I got in, I wouldn't say an argument, but a pretty heated discussion with one of my colleagues about, um, about this, about how we do this at church is we're facing some pretty delicate ethical issues um, and how the church has failed on this in the past um, and how there's a fear that they're going to fail on it in the future so we just throw up our hands and not speak the truth because we don't want to, uh, we don't want to um, wrongly um, miss out on loving them or maybe I'm an idealist but I say no we can't abandon uh, being really open and honest with the truth but we've got to do it in love. I don't think he denied that. I think that as a couple generations ahead of me, he just was um, a bit pessimistic on whether the church can do this. Can we speak the truth in love? If we can't, how are we going to seek unity? How are we going to, how are we going to present something to the world that's different? I don't know. I like to think that we can, but I also think that he's coming from a place of experience in which the church has failed at this. Um, repeatedly. So, um, I don't know, maybe we can do better. Yeah. Speaking through legislation, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we speak truth outside of relationship, yeah. and that's problematic. Yeah, a couple more, and then hand over to them. In a quick reading this morning, this was sober, I thought, on a simple outline, Normally, Paul, when you talk about what worthy of Paul, you'll, you'll have a list of bad things to do. Oh, yeah. And he does that through this chapter. We're going to get through things to get rid of. But this first one off the bat in this chapter it is um, pursuing the gift that you've been given mm-hmm. and having this group of people who are supposed to equip us to do it. Like, okay, so if I, I, I was encouraged by that to point in terms of, okay, how can I practically? Walk worthy of these kind of things about what I shouldn't do. And what I shouldn't <laughs> yes, do. yes. Well, first off the bat in this group is the idea of you have a gift, each one of us can get <coughs> You need to you know, 
put you know using that gift is either to you know to, there's some elements to it, but that's very practical. Yeah. To walk worthy means you need to be exercising your gift. Yeah, sure yeah that's a nice, a nice piece. Uh, I, I err on the side of saying what we shouldn't do rather than what we, yeah, I've probably got, I'm sure i got some fundamentalist legalism in me <laughs> that makes me highlight that. I saw a couple Rhonda, of... Rhonda, uh, Rhonda, did you have back here? Talk about yeah. that in just a second, a little bit more. Rhonda? Yeah. Josh, with your uh, definition there that he has given, I mean, you're reading out of the Greek yeah. where he has given apostles and evangelists and teachers to the church mm -hmm. instead of giving some to be uh -huh. that. Are, is that a teaching where you're leading into the fact that those gifts can be given temporarily and then taken away? Yeah. Does that is Paul here going on to, to really teach the ongoing engagement of Christ in the lives of people instead of a kind of a once and for all and then stepping back away from it? Yeah, there's certainly an ongoing, I mean, it seems like so much of this is a process, the calling to which you've been called. You know, it's, there's a past, present, and future in all this, and he calls them to maturity, which seems to imply a kind of growth uh, in all of this. So, I can't figure out gifts in Paul, whether it's temporary and he might shift. Um, he gives some specific things for all time. I, I, I have a hard time parsing it. Um, but in here, we've all been given that one spirit. And I think the spirit moves sometimes in, uh, in ways that are hard to box. And maybe that's why Paul isn't clear. Yeah. What kind of what? Verb. That's oh, water. The men in day gave on one hand and apostles day teachers. That's where they get the word song. Um well Yeah, so he gave, so it's aorist. Yeah. So you're reading the men and day as some I read it as translations for some. Yeah. Men on one hand, mm -hmm. apostles day teachers. So 
Yeah. It's not just a straight apostle. You can't leave out the men of day. Yeah, I read that as he gave on the one hand, and he gave on the other hand, yeah. rather than some, which sounds like he's giving. Well, that's just practical. Some is just a practical way of trying to describe this idea. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here, here. Maybe. Yeah. In all in all of the gifts, these the apostles who received miraculous endowments, my view is they had to struggle with it, to appropriate it to their in their lives, figure out what it meant, how to use it, that the spirit didn't make them do something against their will. As you know, Peter didn't totally understand the gospel. It's for the Gentiles, who spoke in tongues and languages and healed people. He had all these powers and yet he struggled with it. And I'm sure Paul, as he's in, in one sense, he understood that his calling was going to end at some point. He's in prison, sitting there in shackles. Uh, had some struggles every day. Verse 17 through 32, uh, here in the second part of the chapter, some practicalities. Calling Gentiles, he says, live no longer as the ungodly or Gentiles do or the pagans do because they're hopefully confused, their, their minds are full of darkness, they are far away from the life of God. They've shut their minds. They've hardened their hearts. As you were talking a minute ago, there's some responsibility on listeners to open up their hearts and listen. Let, let the light come in. Let the, the Spirit come in and work on your heart uh, to have some room to change. If you think you... you t- One of the struggles with somebody as you get older each year is, okay, what do I do this year? I had my physical this past year. And I was talking to Tom Whitfield, my doctor. Uh, he says, how are you feeling? How am I supposed to feel? I've never been 73.9 before. You know, everything hurts a little bit. But, but how, how are you supposed to approach the Christian life? Have you arrived or are you still struggling with this thing uh, of, of Christianity as to what it should mean in your life as a 73.9 uh, person? Or not .95, I guess it is. Pretty, pretty close to 74. <laughs> but uh, this, this idea, and again, this is strong language. It's a pretty much of an indictment against an entire race of, or peoples of the earth, the Gentiles. Were all Gentiles closed-minded? Were all of them hard-hearted? No. But it's to get their, get their uh, attention. Uh, Cornelius was a righteous man. He was a Gentile. There were exceptions, but this was an overgeneral, overgeneralization and I'm prone to do that sometimes when I say, all Auburn fans, no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, but uh, they don't, it is, it's a deliberate act of closing your mind, too. You can, you can be guilty of that. Just as Jesus called the religious people to new standards, Matthew 5, remember the, the you've heard, the f- five or six of them? You've heard, thou shalt not kill, but I say a new standard. If you wish evil to somebody, you're guilty of murder. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already. A new standard. And for these Gentiles, you have new standards for them. What might have been acceptable in their culture, he's calling them to a better life. They're, they're calling. So don't live like the uh, pagans or Gentiles. Live up to this new calling which you had lives full of all kinds of impurity and greed. Greed was pervasive in that culture. The lust for more, we want to call you to a new calling. And certainly we know each day greed causes all manner of problems. We've got a high-profile trial going, over, going on over in East Tennessee. 
very respectable company, Pilot Flying J, respectable family, the Haslam family owns it. And what went on? You had a, who, who knows exactly who knew what, but that trial's going on. People have been accused of improperly uh, or cheating customers out of their rebates. Because of what? Because their bonuses were tied to the bottom line. Their ability to earn more money. They got greedy. Uh, verses 20 through 24. Uh, you, you were taught differently, he says. You have heard about Jesus. You have learned about the truth in Jesus. Throw off your evil nature. Uh, the picture is putting on a change of clothes. Used to, you could, you could pretty much tell where somebody was going by the dress they had on. If they had on a coat and tie, they were going to a wedding, or they might be going out to dinner. Uh, now everybody wears Levi's and, and old clothes that have holes in them. You don't know where they're going. But he's saying here, throw off the old, I'm, I'm not indicting you if you've got on Levi's. It's perfectly okay. He says, uh, throw off your old life. There must be a spiritual renewal. And Rhonda, you've spent much of your career uh, talking to people about spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, spiritual renewal, all those kinds of things. And, and what, what, what causes that is you spend time on it, right? It's not an accidental process. If you are a well, if you looked at those football games yesterday, those athletes have trained over and over, hour upon hour, just for those minutes. And to see either team go off disappointed is, is well, it's disappointing. Um, because they have worked so hard. Uh, verse 25, so here's the call to a better life. Put away all falsehood and tell your neighbor the truth because we belong to each other. It's insulting to me if you lie to me. The old saying, you know that person's lying if their lips are moving. Boy, what a terrible thing. What, what got General Flynn in trouble this week? Lying to the FBI. What got Martha Stewart put in prison? Lying to the FBI. She made it. It was a, a, a stock tip. She got like $50,000. It was $50,000. If she had admitted that she did get inside information, it would have probably been a slap on a wrist and a fine. But she couldn't admit that she had lied. And the problem with lying is you have to remember what you've said. Who did you tell what to? If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember who you've told what. Verse 26, beware of anger. Doesn't mean don't ever get angry. It's, it's beware of the wrong kind of anger. Anger that leads to bitterness, hate, and retaliation. Jesus got angry, a righteous anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, if, you've got, if you've got a problem that needs to be solved, try your best to solve it without letting anger fester, become infected, and lead to something that you don't want to happen. Verse 28, if a thief, if you're a thief, if, you, if you're prone to stealing, stop it. Get an honest job and do what? 
Earn a living and do what? Share, Share with others. Uh, this is the time of year that uh, so many of us that get money at various times of year, we look at our year-end giving. Catch up, whatever. But all of us are blessed. It's not just to enrich ourselves, but to share with others. And he, he adds this as a challenge to these people in Ephesus. Uh, verse 29. Uh, back to the line. We were right in church this morning. <laughs> Favorite story. Uh, she doesn't like Catherine, who's teaching next door, our daughter, when she was about seven, had told us a big fat lie. And we tried to teach her. I tried to teach her a little bit of a, a little bit of a punishment. And so you just can't lie, Catherine. And so she was out playing. We had a cul-de-sac and like 20 kids on all these houses. But our next door neighbor is the Gilberts. She plays with their little girl and Manette, who was our neighbor, said, uh, the little girl said, Mom, please let Catherine stay for dinner. Please, please let her stay for dinner. And uh, Manette said, Catherine, do you want to stay for dinner? So we're having meatloaf. You like meatloaf? No, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to lie about it. <laughs> she didn't like it. Okay. All right, verse 29. Foul language. Abusive language. Uh, we've all been, been uh, the subject, and we may have used foul and abusive language at times. It says, let all be good and helpful to encourage others. If I think of comedians, some of the funniest people I've ever seen. Richard Pryor. Eddie Murphy, George Carlin, Jay Leno, all could be incredibly funny without one single profanity or anything of that nature. Now, yeah, occasionally, you end up, but, and then, but you saw them not on television where they had to clean it up, their nightclub act could be so offensive with language you couldn't stand it. Uh, Henry Cho, who's a comedian that lives here in Nashville, goes to Park Fields, I think. His philosophy was, I'm going to have an act that my little daughter could come see and be okay. And as far as I know, he's made a living out of it by having clean language. If you uh, read, there was a story, this, not to just pick on Tennessee fans, but of this football player that left Tennessee because he has been verbally abused over and over by Butch Jones, he says. I don't know. But make your language useful. There's no need for that foul language. Verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Remember we have God trying to live in us. Don't bring sorrow to the Spirit by the way you live, by the way we live. Remember he's the one who has identified you as his own, guaranteeing you. He's our, he's our guarantee of what our hope is. In verse 31, get rid of all bitterness and anger. How many of us have seen people who die bitter because they have been unable to get, it, get over it? I love that eagle song. Life's not treating you well. Get over it. It's not going to do. 
hatred of somebody else is only going to destroy you. The other person is not, not bothered by it. Uh, I've told the story in other, other occasions. I met a guy on an airplane one night flying from New York to Nashville. And uh, I, I tried to avoid talking to people on planes because, you know, I don't go. But anyway, we got to talking. And it turns out he went to Lipscomb years and years and years ago. And he had been mad at Carl McKelvey for 30 years because Carl McKelvey made him get a haircut to attend graduation. And I finally said, you know, I, I, I don't know Carl McKelvey all that well because I'm not a Lipscomb lifer. But I know this. He hasn't lost one minute of sleep over there. And you have, apparently. I would really suggest that you forget about it and move on. I don't know if he has or not. That's what bitterness can do. That's what bitterness can do. We're out of time. Summary. Leading a life worthy of our calling. Josh said that's a general We We do have accepted Jesus' offer of salvation. That's that free gift of grace. He's given that gift. Put off the old. Put on something new. And that is a process. It goes on to the day we die. And our gifts, whether they're these spiritual gifts of service, whether they're monetary, whatever, those gifts are to help us serve each other on this journey. Thanks. See you next week. Ephesians 5.